This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on a number of issues from specialist areas like ADHD and renal transplantation to more general ones like recovering from COVID-19. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, and Dr. Matt Castledon, Section Editor and GP, who work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Abigail and ADHD in the first instance. Abigail, tell us about advice for managing patients with ADHD. Well, the European ADHD Guidelines Group have published some guidance on this, and they state that service provision should continue using telehealth wherever possible. If it's indicated, patients should be offered the opportunity to start on medication following an initial assessment. Okay, thank you. And and tell us uh, tell us more about the medication um, side of things. Well, patients who are already established on medication should continue taking it as prescribed, and they shouldn't increase the medication dose above the dose prescribed in order to manage the stress of confinement and lockdown. Okay, um, thank you. And what about monitoring? Um, tell us uh, about monitoring if if you can. Routine cardiovascular examination and face-to-face monitoring um, can be deferred for individuals who don't have any cardiovascular risk factors. Home blood pressure monitoring and heart rate monitoring is recommended if possible. And the guidelines recommend that schools prioritise monitoring of students with ADHD as well. Okay, thank you. And I guess the cardiovascular monitoring is all about patients on medication is that is that correct yes that's right it's monitoring for potential cardiovascular side effects or complications of the medication for adhd okay thank you let's move on to renal transplantation um tell us about what the guidance say about renal transplantation Yes, NICE in the UK have published some guidance on the management of renal transplant recipients, donors and candidates. So kidney transplant recipients are classified as extremely vulnerable to COVID-19 and they should follow the government guidelines on shielding. Um, Clinicians should consider whether fewer blood tests could be performed because it might be safe to reduce the frequency of monitoring blood tests in stable patients. If a patient develops fever or respiratory symptoms, it's important to consider other possible infectious and non-infectious causes besides COVID-19. And it might be appropriate to modify immunosuppressive treatment for patients who develop COVID-19. There are some guidelines on this from the British Transplantation Society and Renal Association, and they recommend stopping mycophenolate and azathioprine until the patient has fully recovered. If the patient is admitted to hospital, clinicians should consider stopping or reducing calcineurin inhibitors. And if the patient is taking corticosteroids, a temporary increase in dose may be needed. 
Okay, thank you. And say you have a patient on the kidney transplant waiting list who develops symptoms of COVID-19. What, what should happen then? Well, they need to be tested as soon as possible. Um, so they should have a nasopharyngeal swab for SARS-CoV-2. If the swab is positive, then the patient needs to recover from COVID-19, be symptom-free for 28 days and have a negative swab result before they return to the transplant waiting list. If the swab is negative, some clinical judgment is needed and clinicians should assess the likelihood of COVID-19 before the patient rejoins the list because the test isn't 100% sensitive. Okay, thanks, uh, thanks Abigail. Um, let's move on to Matt and recovering from uh, COVID-19, which is something we've heard a, a lot about really in the medical and lay press over the uh, past couple of weeks. Matt, tell us about post-intensive care syndrome. Well, post-intensive care syndrome describes an amalgamation of persistent physical, cognitive and psychological impairments. As a problem, it's been flagged up in NHS England's guidance published last month for the aftercare of patients with COVID-19. It's thought to accompany 56% of patients who have been on prolonged ventilation. So at 12 months following that, their period of prolonged ventilation, um, over half of patients will be experiencing these symptoms, it's believed. They include generalised weakness, fatigue, uh, reduction in mobility, uh, mood problems, anxiety or depression, and distinct from that, cognitive issues such as memory disturbance or poor concentration. And the NHS guidance highlights that in most areas there are critical care follow-up clinics available um, but the criteria on how to uh, access them, criteria that need to be met, um, do vary. Uh, so it's really flagging up the syndrome for GPs or other clinicians or people organising care um, who may not be aware of it. Thanks, Matt. And um, post-intensive care syndrome, uh, I'm guessing, can happen with, with any patient who is admitted to intensive care who is ventilated for a prolonged period. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It's a, an established phenomenon that's been known to happen in any patient admitted to intensive care requiring ventilation. It's not specific to COVID-19, um, but clearly there's going to be a, a bigger cohort of patients uh, in that situation following the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, thank you. And, and tell us about respiratory and cardiac complications specifically, and also rehabilitation. So yeah, the NHS England document has flagged up, obviously, that more people are going to be discharged home with pulmonary problems, uh, respiratory problems, perhaps using home oxygen, uh, and that's regardless of whether they're treated on intensive care, of course. And with that, uh, there's likely to be an increased need for pulmonary rehabilitation services. The problem there, it, it mentions being that uh, occupational therapists and physios have been redeployed to acute hospital settings in large numbers to deal with the pandemic. So there may be a, uh, an issue of, of service provision there. And it also identifies pulmonary embolism 
as being a particular problem seen in patients with COVID-19. Uh, and again, as these patients are discharged, there may be an increased need for um, review by appropriate teams, anticoagulation clinics, and long-term follow-up associated with that. The document signposts and resources, so British Thoracic Society guidance is uh, out there that, that covers pulmonary embolism and COVID-19. Uh, also the importance of online resources, for example, delivering uh, pulmonary and for that matter, cardiac rehabilitation virtually. And they're expecting to launch a, a specific COVID recovery program, a virtual rehabilitation platform later on this month in July. Okay, thank you. And and lastly, there's the issue of of, of mental health um, post, uh, post-COVID-19. Tell us about that. Well, there's a recognition that mental health problems are, are going to be significant in patients who have recovered from COVID-19. So problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety disorders, or a recurrence of previous mental health problems. There's some literature quoted that relates to uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, so not COVID-19 specifically, but that 40% of patients may experience anxiety, depression, depression in 30% and PTSD in 20%. So if those numbers are carried across to COVID-19, then clearly there there may be a problem, a significant problem. In terms of addressing this, it encourages patients and families to be given written and verbal information when the patient's discharged, outlining um, the potential for these sorts of problems, but states that GPs may need to prompt patients to discuss psychological Um, problems and to access existing psychological therapy services. Organisations are producing guidance specific to COVID-19 now as well. So the British Psychological Society have guidance on people recovering from severe coronavirus. And it also mentions the the importance of peer support groups. So patients are setting up their own peer support groups, often online. At the moment, it's generally for people who've been admitted to ICU and perhaps experiencing the problems we've already discussed, but um, they may be beneficial for wider groups of patients uh, as well. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Matt and Abigail, and and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.